Hey, I'm Wendy Tamas Robbins, and I lived with a variety of anxiety disorders for over 40 years. If you're struggling and looking for support from someone who's been there, you've come to the right place. And if you don't have anxiety, but you're struggling to understand what everyone's talking about, yeah, I got you too. I'm honored to be your host, your guide, and your coach, helping you explore and navigate all things mental well-being. When I realized my comfort zone had turned into a prison, I went on a journey to find freedom and to step into the life that was waiting for me on the other side. Now, I'm sharing everything I learned with you, the tools and the treasures that are buried inside all of us. I'm a recovering perfectionist, a professional panic attacker, an anxiety coach, a speaker, an advocate, a corporate attorney, a stepmom, wife, and now a best-selling author. Get ready for real stories of struggle and transformation that are as messy as they are magical. I'll cover mindfulness and nutrition, meditation and movement, resiliency and recovery, and everything in between. So whether it's a solo show or a conversation with one of my guests, you'll leave feeling less alone and inspired by examples of what is possible. This is my invitation to you to stop hiding and meet me here twice a month to reveal and connect over our deepest vulnerabilities so we can carry the weight together. And remember, I'm not a medical professional or a licensed clinician. I'm a small town girl who achieved big dreams while unraveling inside and then turned her anxiety into her superpower. Let me show you how to transform your anxiety from your kryptonite into your cape. So whether you're taking a drive or a walk or just a moment alone, this is your time to feel heard and held, seen, safe, and supported as we hold space for our collective struggles. This is the Perfectly Panicked Podcast. We are together, together. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We're starting the second season of Perfectly Panic today with episode 21, and I couldn't be happier to kick it off with just the most lovely, smart, courageous, and amazing woman who I'll introduce to you all in a minute. But first, I have just a few announcements. As many of you know, I had colon cancer last year. So about eight months of 2022 were swallowed up by surgeries and chemotherapy. And I wanted to let you know that I'm now cancer-free. My scans are clear and I'm working so hard to rebuild my gut, my microbiome, my lean muscle, my immune system and balance my hormones. I'm learning so much about food and supplements and hydration and what we put in our bodies and how we can support ourselves in different ways based on our age, our diagnoses, even our genetic makeup and how essential it all is to our mental and our physical health, our equanimity and our longevity. So I'll continue to talk about all of that here on the podcast and as well as uh, in Cave Club, which is my next announcement. But before I go there, I do want to thank all of you for all of your support and your well wishes throughout my cancer journey. 2022 really changed my life completely. And I'm eternally grateful for that and for all of you. So Cave Club, well, going through chemo, I finally had time to just be. And during that time, I reflected on my life and my career I talked to as many friends as I could on my good days, most of which, most of whom were and are professional women. And I was able to reset my compass. And it was then that I decided to leave my legal practice after 24 years and pivot out of big law and into the wellness space. And that's when I created Cave Club. 
It's a wellness community exclusively for professional women with individual and group coaching, expert workshops, well-being activities, peer support groups, yoga, and guided meditations. And in my next episode, number 22, um, I'll be talking just about Cave Club. So I hope you'll join me next week. Uh, I'll talk all about what inspired it, what necessitates it, and why it's so unique and special and transformational. So today I am talking to the amazing Donia Fazebash. Donia is an Aquarius and a lawyer in that order. Following her training in private practice at Shook Hardy and Bacon in Washington, DC, Donia sought to find peace in her legal career. While at Shook, she pushed boundaries by starting conversations and initiatives about supporting mental health within the legal world and erasing the stigma. Donia made a career shift into the television industry as a lifetime fan of the escapism offered by TV. Now she's a legal, uh, she's legal counsel at BBC Studios in New York City, and she continues to champion the importance of mental health and is open about her own personal journey, which we are going to dive deep into today. Donia and I met after she heard me talking openly in the, in the legal space about my own story, my own mental health struggles, and she reached out to me and asked me to come speak at her law firm at Shakardi and Bacon. And I did, I came and did a few programs there. And then as we continued our relationship, she interviewed me for a podcast on the National Association of Women Lawyers podcast. And then she invited me to BBC Studios to where she and I actually did a program together for Mental Health Month last May, where we talked about the loneliness epidemic and its, its impacts on our physical and mental health. So we've sort of grown together over the last year and a half, um, and I've watched her literally transform from hiding her disorders and feeling so isolated to stepping out into courageous vulnerability and advocating in the mental health space. It's been truly amazing to watch her, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. We touch on OCD, suicide ideation, and depression. So if you're if you feel like you'll be triggered by any of those things, please stop here and protect your peace. We also talk about being highly accomplished women and at times continuing to diminish the value of those accomplishments because we did it. So they must not have been that big of a deal, which is so relatable, but also so sad. Um, we talk about what it was like to have OCD in the middle of the pandemic and then the silver lining of the pandemic where she uh, had, you know, finally had time and space to reflect on her own life and reimagine her own future. We talk about big law, the lifestyle, the competition and the race to see who can be the most miserable and asking yourself, is this the goal? Is this actually something that I want? And the uh, the, the traps of maybe losing yourself along the way. And then asking yourself if happiness is the goal or does it just add more pressure? And then finally turning your shameful secrets into your superpowers. So let's go, let's dive in. Welcome Donia to the Perfectly Panicked Podcast. It's so amazing to finally have you here. We've had so many other amazing conversations for even other podcasts, but now to have you on my own, I'm just really excited to have you here. So welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It feels right. <laughs> yeah. It feels like the perfect time. Um, yeah. So I've already told everyone about, um, you know, who you are, how we, how we came to find each other. We're sort of like soul sisters, except I think I'm a really, really much older sister. Oh, I love soul sisters. I, I love that. Let's Yes. Yeah. But it feels like we're definitely, we found a real soul connection really quickly. Um, so I hope that comes across in this conversation. And I really look forward to, we were just talking about like how little I actually know about your background, even though mine's an That's open what makes book, this literally. exciting. <laughs> I know. Right. Right. I'm really excited to like dive, dive even deeper. So, um, as most of my podcasts start, 
because of how I grew up, I always like to start at the beginning because I think so much of who we are comes from those mental constructs that are formed even sometimes before we're even verbal, right? So what was it like for you growing up as little Donia? Well, it's so interesting that you say that because as I was trying to think about kind of where my story started, I was really thinking about your story and the box and kind of how it really started so young. So I was like, let's see how young this started for me. Um, But for growing up, I, my parents just raised me to believe that I could do anything I wanted and that I had the ability to do whatever I wanted. Um, And it was a real blessing in that way. Their support, you know, had encouragement too, um, but it kind of came out in different ways. Both my parents were born and raised in Iran. So I'm a first generation Iranian was born in Manhattan, raised in New York. Um, I remember it was always like when my report cards would come in, it would be, oh, you got an A minus. Good. But like you could have gotten an A, you know, if you just tried a little bit harder, like you can do it, but you like just need to work a little bit harder. And I remember it was such a stressful time having my report cards come in. It was like, am I going to disappoint them or am I going to satisfy them? Um, And it really ingrained this theme in me that was, I'm not good enough, but I can be if I just choose to be. Um, And that really transferred to a lot of aspects in my life. I was a dancer from a young age. I started doing ballet at the age of two. Um, And, you know, I always felt like my hips were a little all the other girls or I wasn't as good as the other girls. And I trained exactly the same amount of hours, you know, did everything that everyone else was doing. So why did I feel like I wasn't on par? Um, And I kept saying, well, maybe trying my best. I'm choosing not to A minus to an A. That's a choice I'm making. Um, And at age 16, I was diagnosed with a tumor in my left femur. And long story benign, but it took dance out of my life. And this was, I had this point, I had been dancing 10 hours a day for my entire life. So it was a real drastic change. Um, and I always told myself I could be like one of those Olympic stories where, you know, something gets hurt or injured or something, and then they come back and it's, they come back better than ever. And it's nothing even happened. Um, and kind of going back to that theme, I felt like I was choosing not to do that. I was just like being lazy. I was making that choice to not be my best. Mm-hmm. Um, and that theme just like really continued even after that into college and law school and choosing not to be my best self. It was kind of like this internal blame, this narrative that was just, just became a part of my daily life. And was that a self-sabotage? Like, were you actually choosing not to, or was it that you were choosing to be your best? And if you fell below that, what, what your parents had set out as this is the bar, if you didn't reach it, did, were you blaming yourself? Like, was that a critical side, even though you were trying your hardest? Definitely. Um, that's self-sabotage and that self, like it was a lot of shame involved. I would say, you know, what's wrong with you that you can't do be the be that person that's one level up that everyone knows you can be, but you're just not being. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was it really you know cares even to through to today where I don't know where my real self is. Is my real self that who gets straight A's or the girl who gets A minuses and she's still trying her hardest? And it's yeah. so um, it really just I guess the topic of my current my current therapy sessions, but it's. Um, <laughs> definitely a theme that just continues through everything. Yeah. So I feel a lot of pressure in that when you, when you speak that truth, like that, that is um, not only the pressure of the external pressure, like I'm not going to get the, I'm not going to get the validation that I want unless I reach this certain point, even though I'm trying my hardest, like that's not enough to get the praise that I want but also that pressure of trying to find your true voice. Like, well, now I feel like there's added pressure. Like, who am I? Who, how do I stay true to myself? Why do I want that external validation? Yeah. That's a lot for a kid growing up for sure. 
Yeah. And it's, it's so, um, it almost feels like it's a part of me, like it's in my bones now. Um, and it's something that it's not only like the shame that comes out of it, but it's also, like you said, like finding my voice, like, who am I? Am I, is this me? Like, or am I supposed to be something else? And I think that's been something I've struggled with for sure. Right. Cause are you, do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a younger brother. Okay. Um, so do you think that, um, that shaped you becoming a lawyer? Because it certainly did for me and my story. So I'd be curious to hear why you chose the law as a profession, given what being a lawyer in the United States sort of symbolizes. I know that I did a podcast for someone in the UK once and they were like, well, we look at our barristers as like a shit job. <laughs> like nobody really, <laughs> really holds them in quite high esteem over here. But I think that that's not true necessarily for the United States. I think that it is a profession that we hold in a high regard and that there is a certain um, feeling of high accomplishment when you finish law school, you pass the bar, you earn that degree. So what was your, what was your relationship with that choice and with that label that you were seeking? Being a lawyer for me was something that I wanted to prove. Um, I know most people say they joined the law because they wanted to change the world. And I definitely had that aspect in me, sure. Um, but I think my biggest reason was I just wanted to prove to myself, prove to my parents prove to others that I could actually do it, that I could, you know, take the LSATs, get into law school, pass the bar, become a lawyer, that this wasn't something that I could do, but that I actually did. Mm -hmm. And that was the big, that was the big driving factor for me. And which is, says a lot because as soon as that ended, as soon as law school ended and I had accomplished that, I really got lost. And I think that's where the majority of my depression and anxiety kind of came in in that moment because that thing that I was trying to prove I did it but now what mm -hmm. what comes next yeah I think we um we definitely share that in common that was one of my first rock bottoms for sure I felt like I had fallen off of a cliff and while yeah. You know, you can look at it in a different way. Like, well, now you have all of these opportunities open to you, like that so many women before us didn't. You've accomplished this amazing thing. You're a female lawyer, you're young. And those opportunities overwhelmed me. It was like I was spinning out of control. Like there was, it was like the end of the yellow brick road, right? Yeah. You're in Oz and then it, the whole world just starts like crumbling around you. I was so lost, as you said. Oh my gosh, a hundred percent. And it, it also like diminished kind of the, not, I don't even want to say prestige of it, but just like the wow factor of it. Like, wow, law school, wow, becoming a lawyer. Because I remember sitting at my graduation or like opening my bar results and just being like, oh, if I can do it. It must not have been that hard. <laughs> you know, yeah, like this big thing. Oh, I, if I did it okay, maybe it wasn't that hard of a thing. Big of a deal. Yeah, yeah, it's so awful. Instead of saying, now look at me, now I'm such a big deal because I accomplished it. We diminish exactly yeah. what we held in such high regard. Isn't that crazy? It's just like, yeah. it's this constant, I mean, just bringing myself down, being like, oh, like, again, that whole not good enough theme is just really resonated. Yeah, like that must've been like an A minus, you know? Yes. I didn't pick. Maybe there was something else out there that was the A that I should have become. Right. Like if I could do that, then like maybe I could do something else. But then it's also conflicted with the, oh, I'm not good enough to do more than that. You know? So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that you say that because that became sort of my rallying cry as I started to tame my anxiety. I would say, oh, if I can do that, what else can I do? You know, if I can, and especially with exposure, therapy, <laughs> like if I can do that, like I felt limitless, whereas it's sort of the opposite with what you're saying. Well, if I can do that, it must not have been that important. So let's pause there for a minute, because you said that you feel like it was when you graduated and, and passed the bar that it was sort of the first time that you started to feel anxiety and depression. And so 
talk about how that started to present for you. Like for people that may have not really um, ever experienced that or for others who have and feel like they're the only ones who experienced it in a very unique way, but they want to feel less alone. How did it really present for you? Like on a granular level? You know how um, you'd like define your personality who's extroverted or introverted or whatever those like big labels are. For me, I was like, maybe I'm just someone who's not like super happy all the time. Maybe that's just who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and my therapist always says that she compares it to having the tools in the toolbox. You know, now going through therapy, I have the tools in the toolbox to identify how I feel in a certain moment and like dissect how I feel and sit with it. But throughout my life, I didn't have those tools. So I really feel like this depression has been a part of me for so long, Um, but I didn't have the tools then. So I can't really pinpoint, you know, like a start date. Um, But as I was mentioning before, you know, after law school, I moved to Washington, D.C. I worked for a law firm there and I was that planner, right? I was like, okay, law school, job. And then I got there and there was no next thing. So I felt just like I was here. This is it. This is the thing that we have been waiting for your whole life. I always do this thing. I don't know if you can relate, but it's like, oh, when I get to that point in my life or when I'm happy or when I have a job or when I graduate, that's when I'll start being happy. That's when I'll start living my life. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, I got there. So I didn't have a next thing. And it was really weird. (laughs) I didn't know what to do with it. Um, I gained a tremendous amount of weight. I was, I stopped dressing for work. I go in like the bare minimum, my hair in a bun, like barely showered. Like it was just really, um, really, I think obvious. Um, if you just looked at me, uh, I would go into, so we had like this office in DC and I had my own private office as well so I would kind of go in and I could go a whole day without seeing anyone so it was very isolating and very lonely Mm -hmm. um and I remember I used to cry all the time um I would just cry at everything and anything my boss would ask me to go on a work trip or something like that and I would just cry um that like lack of I felt like I didn't have control over my life and I couldn't like articulate that it was a very weird time for me um what's a little different is that I also was developing obsessive compulsive disorder so I was really coming out and washing my hands a lot um washing my surroundings I used to take Clorox wipes and like wipe the floor Um, I remember my office was always smelling like Clorox because of the way that I would clean it because I just, I had to, there was no, there was something inside me that said, you have to, there was no question about it. And if I didn't do it, or if someone entered my office or if something happened, it would destroy me for the day. And it was really, really all consuming. Um, I remember I used to take showers that were like over an hour long. And I would just be like scrubbing my skin and and it really like to that point, like I would come out with like red scars on my skin from scrubbing so hard or like I would pass out because I'm in like a hot steamy shower for over an hour. So it was just like a very bad time. It was a very, very low time for me. Mm. Uh, And I had OCD in a different way. I, I didn't have the physical manifestations like that, but do you feel like there was something that you were trying to like wash yourself off of you? You know what I mean? It's yeah. because I feel like when I, I had those sort of feelings too, like I was running to the next thing, always thinking that that would be what would relieve my anxiety. I would be fine once I got these things because the lack of having them must be what's causing my anxiety. Once I have money and I have a husband and I feel stable and I feel like I I have praise and I have worth and I have value from all of these, the job and the marriage, obviously I will be happy. Like that's the definition of happy. Right. And then I got them all. And the problem was I was still there. Like I, I wasn't any different. Like that's what you're saying. Right. You got it. And you're like, but I'm still here. And I was the problem apparently. And so I can see myself almost in the shower, like. I need to wash the me off of myself so that I can let the happy part come out. 
but just trying to wash something off of you to like free yourself of all of that, uh, the anxiety, the depression, the unhappiness, like how do I let my true self get out of this body? Absolutely. And I think that's how I lived my whole life at that stage. It was when I get there, when I get there, I'll be happy when I get to that life, when I get there. And a lot of my cleaning was kind of a fresh start. It was a starting over. Mm -hmm. So, okay, if I clean and to zero, then I can start living being that person who gets the A's instead of the A minuses. I can start choosing a different life. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like a restart for me. Um, started with cleaning every Sunday to cleaning every morning to cleaning constantly, constantly wanting to restart because I constantly kept not, in my own eyes, I kept failing that goal I would set for myself. So I need to restart. I needed to restart. I needed to restart. And that's so painful to hear that from an an outsider looking at you, like this beautiful, accomplished woman, like first generation, like, um, I mean, you're doing this while you're an associate in, in big law, essentially. And so, which is the pinnacle for so many people. Yeah. And so where did, do you feel like um, being in that, law firm environment, that structure, that culture, do you feel like that exacerbated what you were going through? Oh, a hundred percent. It in like within the walls of the office, but also externally, because I I would turn to my mom who I'm very close with. And I would say, you know, I don't feel happy. And she was like, happy, who's happy. Um, and I was okay. Just, uh, what do I do with that information? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I would confide in my aunt at the time and she would say, you know, why you're, you're healthy. You have a great job. What's the issue? Like, what are you sad about? What could you possibly be sad about? Um, and I think that externally made me feel like, yeah, like what they're right. I'm healthy. Like I'm fine. Like there are other people who have much worse. So what's, what are we complaining about? Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like being in the law firm was kind of like a law school 2.0. It was very accelerated. It was very like competitive. It was very, um, kind of a race to see who's the most miserable and who worked the hardest. Who's which, the most miserable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I remember in law school, it was, it's like, I signed up for this, right? Like I signed up for this like three year competition. Mm-hmm. Fine. But I felt like all of a sudden it was continuing and it was, now it was my life. And now I, I was like, I don't, I didn't sign up for this. I thought right. that was just like a small thing I had to do to get here. Why am I still fighting so hard? Mm-hmm. And it was really exhausting. It was hard because I didn't have that like internal energy to do anything. Yeah. And there's no goal line, right? To your point, yeah. if it's three years, at least I know the goal. And I know where it ends. So I can hold my breath for that amount of time. But if now there's no end end line or there's no goal line and the goal essentially on a daily basis is who can be the most miserable, i.e. stay the longest, sleep the last, overextend themselves the most. That's the badge of honor that we all carry around. I remember not having pulled an all-nighter in the first few years that I would, and I I was embarrassed. I was like, I can't let anybody know that I haven't stayed a full night yet. Like- oh my, I used to lie about it. I used to like, yeah, I'm not all night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. it was, it's it's like that badge. Like, I didn't want it. So yeah. the fact that the thing I was working towards wasn't something I actually wanted was really confusing. Mm-hmm. And it really made me feel like I need to change something has to change. Like I can't stay like this. But then the question is, what do I want? And that is like one of the hardest questions anyone can ask themselves. Never mind somebody who's sacrificed so much in terms of their time, their happiness, their whatever, going through all of this schooling. Um, and now you're like, well, I can't give all of that up. I can't walk away from that. Like I just, it's a time investment. It's a financial investment. It's, you know, where do I go from here? Which is just added pressure, added stress. Like, how do I make this work? Um, so that's just 
somebody who doesn't bring any mental health issue to the situation would be feeling that way. Right. So, so you're saying your anxiety, your OCD, the depression just got worse. Did you stay with the same law firm? Did you make a move at that point? Did you, were you doing things to start to address your OCD? Um, like, were you, did you, were you aware of it? What, what were some of the changes that you made in your life at that point to perhaps address it or maybe not? It was the horrific yet blessing in disguise of the COVID pandemic that I really think saved my life in a lot of ways, I was like, what do I do? I was trying to find a new job. Didn't even know what kind of job I wanted. And every time I tried to think, what kind of law do you want to do? Remember, I went to law school to prove to myself that I could go to law school. So all of a sudden I was like, oh, okay. Now, now what do I do? Like what I have to figure out what I like. That's a huge task, you know, like right, I'm not even happy right now, let alone let's figure out what Donia wants to do with her life and what makes her happy. So it was a very... I needed space and I needed time to answer these questions and then the world shut down. So it was such perfect timing in that way for me, not to say that it was easy in any way, right? I had OCD, I had a cleanliness um, issue. So when you have an invisible virus disease thing that you don't know, I, I don't know if you remember in the beginning, we thought it was like, if you touch something, it was on it. So like, I just, I closed off. I mean, I went from maybe being at 50 to being at 100. Like I was, I completely like couldn't touch anything. I didn't touch my phone. I didn't, I lost myself completely during that time. Um, but thankfully, um, my best friend recommended her therapists to me. And at that point I was back in New York at my parents' house, kind of riding out the pandemic. And I was like, okay, I can do, I can do telehealth. I can do like a, like a video call. I don't have to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started therapy and that easily hands down saved my life. Just being able to talk to someone who I didn't feel like I was burdening by talking to them Mm -hmm. about what I was going through. I think that was a big issue for me. I That's giving them my problems to deal. What are they going to do with that? That just sucks for them. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, that's such a huge part of it where people who are trying to help us a lot of times are trying to solve the problem with us instead of just holding space for us. And so when people can hold space, it's like such an amazing gift because that's exactly when we feel like we're not a burden that they're just like, no, that must be awful for you. I'm just going to sit here with you and feel that with you for a minute, you know, even if I've never felt it literally myself, just, just hold that pain with you for a few minutes. And that's sort of what therapy can do, what coaching can do. And it was very refreshing. It was very, um, I didn't ever feel understood. I always felt like there was something wrong with me. So I remember so vividly one morning before I was going to the office I was in my like little studio apartment and I'm calling my mom, literally screaming, crying, like incoherent, um, not even saying anything, not even able to explain why I was so sad and why I was so miserable. And at that moment, I was just like, oh my God, like this is, this can't be life. Like this can't be how this is. Something, something has to change. And I genuinely, in that moment, if you asked me, didn't think it could. I really like had accepted defeat. I was like, this is my life. This is what it's going to be. I mean, there were definitely moments of is life worth living like this? Is what's the point? I'm making everyone else miserable around me. I mean, my mom is so sad because she can't help me. My brother is so sad because he can't help me. I can't tell them how to help me because I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like there's nothing positive that I'm adding to this world right now. And that was something that 
you know, I didn't really have anyone to share that with. It was very internal. And quite genuinely, so much of my motivation was like, I know that if I wasn't here anymore, that would just break my mom more. And that was like my big reason for trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you were at the law firm, I know now, years later, that there are tons of service, tons, I shouldn't say tons, there are services for lawyers. Um, I know in Massachusetts, we have lawyers concerned for lawyers, which is free therapy, free counseling. When you were at your firm, did anyone talk about this? Were there any conversations about these are services that are available if you're struggling because lawyers struggle at higher rates than the general public and things like that? I remember the last time I heard that statistic was on my first day of law school orientation. And then I never heard about it again. Um, So I kind of always just knew it was there, but it almost felt like a, well, then everyone's depressed. Well, then everyone's stressed. Um, You're not special for feeling like, like you are not special for going through what you're going through. Um, And no one ever talked about it. It was right. Misery was. So it wasn't something to complain about. Yeah. Um, It was even ask for help. Right. Like it it almost it's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way before, but it's almost like, well, why are you asking for help? Everybody feels this way. Like you're not special. Like don't don't seek help. It's just part of the territory. Like who are you that you get to like ask? has to like give you attention it almost felt very selfish Mm -hmm. to say well poor me you know I'm not happy um because objectively on paper what is your reasoning for not being happy I don't get it Mm -hmm. I couldn't explain it I couldn't and that's what therapy really helped me with during that time was being able to articulate it Mm -hmm. it was really hard for me to say this is why I don't feel happy this is why I don't feel good because I never felt like I had a real justification um you know even throughout my life like when I have a tumor in my leg I it was benign don't complain if you have a benign tumor what's wrong with you you know there's just always this theme of like even at that I wasn't good enough like I wasn't even all the way you know (laughs) what I mean like it was it was it's like a really big kind of back and forth I always had with myself um and I remember I was so desperate to find a therapist while I was in big law. And I think my biggest barrier was cost. I couldn't, I couldn't find anyone that I actually wanted to talk to and could also afford, which Mm -hmm. was insane to me. I was like, I'm an associate in a law firm. I mean, I am better off than a lot of other people. What is everybody else doing? Mm -hmm. And I remember just being like, what, what is this world that we live in? And I would get really frustrated. Um, So I really like started to join talks and like join um, different organizations and groups. And that's when I joined the National Association for Women Lawyers. And that's where I met you. And you were the first person to talk about your journey so honestly. And I remember being it like I watched my life change while I was listening to you. And I remember it was just like, oh, look at her. She went through a lot that you can relate to. And not only did she survive, but she's talking about it. Can I talk about it? Like it was very, very eye-opening. It's like a paradigm shift. Like, yeah, yeah, like a whole new lens gets put on your life oh my gosh, you completely introduced me to a different way to view myself. Mm. And it was really, really necessary in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's so profound. And now you're doing the same for other people, which is amazing. Um, So you talked about some of the barriers to getting help. Um, What kind of help do you think would have been supportive at that time? You know, like when you were, would it have been somebody, would it have been maybe therapy that was free, you know, through the law firm or just trying to think of like the perfect world or what, 
what we could offer to people who were kind of in that structure, in that establishment, what, what could, what could we be doing better as a, as an industry? I think creating spaces to have conversations like that and to share stories like that. I remember um, I started this first generation group while I was at the firm and it turned into kind of just like this big therapy session about why, how everyone, and it was so shocking. I remember crying in my first meeting because I was like, everyone's coming in and saying they don't feel like they belong. Oh my God, it's not just me. That's, Mm -hmm. that's insane. That's crazy. I didn't know that. And I think just like having that space within the firm was like a new thing or listening to like, I was able to listen to a podcast that you did or listen to an interview that you did and you had that platform to do so. But I felt like I couldn't, where else am I supposed to get that from? Like, where else can there just be like this space that I can be honest and connect with people about this thing without feeling weird, without feeling like there's something wrong with me. So I am joining this club. Mm-hmm. I think it's so empowering for, especially as a young woman to see yourself. And like, I saw you and I was just like, wow, like that's, a, it was such a profound impact on me to see someone so beautiful and successful and smart and like coming from like where you, your story and like being able to just share it comfortably. I was like, wow, I want to have more talks like that. I want to share my story. I want to talk about me too. Like, wow, that's, I want to connect with people on that. That's cool. Um, I think just like having that space and having that, that platform, it's just, it needs to not be abnormal. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's really like peer support, right? Like where we're, we're inspired by others, where maybe walking ahead of others who haven't been there before. Like I was walking a few steps ahead of you when I was out there and talking about it and you hadn't stepped into that truth yet of your own. But then once you do, you know, now we walk side by side and we still support one another because you're never there. You've never arrived. You, you're never not struggling in some way, but you support each other in different ways. And, and yeah, it's just, it really drops or helps to men- melt that stigma when we start to normalize these conversations to your point, like it shouldn't be necessarily just a few people. Like I do want to touch on that first generation thing again, because I think there is a lot of, um, stress and expectations as a first generation child here with the opportunities that you've been given with the sacrifices that your parents have made for you specifically um, that bring with it a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety and a lot of um, identity crisis, which is a, it causes tons of anxiety. Like, who am I? Where do I fit in? Who are my people? And to have like just a back room of some hushed conversations where you can kind of talk about it for a few minutes and feel really uplifted and supportive and then have to leave that space for another month because that group doesn't meet more, more often than that, right? Like bringing those out into, into the light and really having a safe space to share like that. Um, I totally agree. It would have changed my life, completely changed my life. Absolutely. And imagine, I I always think, imagine if like kids started with that, oh my gosh, like that would just, it would just be a completely different world for them. And I think, you know, for me, I had you to look up to, and I had, I honestly turned a lot to social media and I turned to celebrities that were now because of the pandemic coming out with their own stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was you know, certain ones that I would connect to more. I remember Selena Gomez being one of them. And like, she was just kind of like, I don't care. Like I have bipolar and this is like things that I'm going through. And I remember being like, wow, that's so cool that she can just say that. And I remember that was the first time that I said the like OCD out loud because OCD has such a stigma. And I remember when my therapist first told me about it, I was like, oh God. Like, I'm really sick. There's something wrong with me. And now it's like 
definitely not a badge of honor in any way, but it's, it's something that I'm not ashamed to say out loud. And I'm not ashamed to say, yeah, I have OCD and I'm managing it and I'm getting through life with it. And it's, you know, I'm on medication for it and it's a lot of work, but it's a part of who I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And exactly. It's how, it's how you experience the world as a human. Like that's how I see neurodiversity. And I think that they all bring positives. If we look at them in a certain way, like certain parts of them can become our superpower, right? Like that's how I talk about my anxiety. If every superpower can be used to, to harm you in a way, like if it's, if it's gone, if it's left to its own devices, it can kind of devour you and take you over. And because it's that strong, but if we learn the skills to kind of hone it and name it and tame it, we can actually use it to inform us and guide us and um, help us grow as a human. Like you feel like a different person now that you have that under control, right? Versus the person you were when you felt like that was controlling you. It's like feeling completely limited and in, in disempowered to feeling completely limitless. Like if I can control my OCD, what, what else can I do? I can do anything. Yeah. It's, it was like, I was a body with OCD and Donia was somewhere inside. And now I'm Donia and I'm dealing with OCD in my life, but it's not who I am. Mm-hmm, and I right. think that was a big, that was a big change for me too. Just yeah. kind of like, that shift is a, is a bit, I remember the first time I heard you talk about how anxiety is a superpower and I just like sobbed because I, I was like my anxiety, I had so much shame around my anxiety and my depression. And like, um, I used to wear gloves and I used to like put so much lotion on because I was ashamed to show people how like dry my hands were from washing them so much. Or, um, I was really ashamed and, I remember even my best friends, like I didn't see them for years because I didn't want them to see like what I had turned into. Um, and, and then I remember you just calling it a superpower. And I was like, what is she talking about? Like, this is, this is like my shameful secret, you know, Mm -hmm. and to kind of flip that narrative was so big for me because I never thought of it that way. And now that's what I, that's, I agree. It makes me who I am in a great way. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you can share those gifts with so many other people out there who are us before we found this, this, this way to reframe it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and kind of tying it back to what you were saying about like the first generation aspect of it. Um, I remember kind of now that I'm inspired to speak about my story and to share my story and I'm so thankful now you're giving me the platform to do that. I remember anytime I post anything on LinkedIn or like talk about it, I remember when I was applying for my new job, I worked with BBC Studios now and like talking about my passion for mental health in my interview process and how it was so well received. Um, And it was something that was really, really important to me. And I remember, you know, my parents being very, and my mom, especially again, we're very close. So we would talk about these things and she would say, you know, are you sure you want all that personal information out there? Like, what if, why would you share that? That's so private. Like you wouldn't even tell your friends that why are you telling random people on the internet or people that you're interviewing for a job? What are you doing? This is your professional life. They shouldn't know these things about you. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard because I felt like that was me. So what, what am I supposed to put out there if it's not me? Yeah. Right. It's that integration of your two lives, right? Where you feel so splintered when your inside world doesn't match your outside world. And that was so difficult for me too to walk into a law firm and put that mask on and try to be this person that I, I was because I could be smart and strong and capable and productive, but to hide the other part took so much energy, right? That it was depleting me. So, but once you speak your truth and you put it out there, then you can be completely integrated and 
maybe you want to advocate in that way and maybe you don't. But just to know that people know that about you and that's part of your story just makes you feel more supported because you're not living in shame or in the shadows anymore. A hundred percent. And that I relate to that mask concept. So, I mean, even to this day, and I think that's what's so interesting too. It's like, I'm not sitting here as like some survivor of like, I'm all great now and everything's wonderful. Like I'm still going to be dealing with this for my whole life, right? This is just something that is a part of who I am still to this day. When I have my therapy sessions after my therapy, I remember I, I just sit there and then I put my mask back on you know, and I, and I go out and do my job and I go out and do my, do the things. And I don't want everyone to know that I was just crying for an hour or, you know what I mean? Like it was, it's, it's very, um, like isolating and it's very, I like that word splinter that you used because I think that's a very, it's like, that's one thing that just kind of goes two different ways and it's painful. Yeah. It is painful. Yeah. And and we're not saying that you go and you meet with your client after that session and you cry with them because you still need time to work through. Obviously, there are boundaries there that are set. Yeah. <laughs> it is a process that we should understand that maybe later in the day we hold space for ourselves and maybe we yeah. meditate or we take a walk or just to be gentle with recognizing what we're what we're processing, right? We're going to therapy to process difficult emotions. And that just doesn't end 50 minutes later because that's right. neat and tidy. There's still stuff there. And so to be compassionate with ourselves. Um, but also if we do bring anything into the workplace after that, for me, it would be understanding that the person I'm dealing with may be going through the same thing I'm going through you know, on a different level, but maybe they had therapy this morning too. And maybe that's why they're short today or, um, uh, you know, difficult to deal with or whatever it may be. Just, I think bringing that empathy into the workplace can be a positive where there is an overflow. And I think that's like the superpower aspect of it, right? Like mm -hmm. taking that and saying, because I am going through so much, I can empathize and understand that maybe someone else is also going through a lot that I don't understand. Right. And I think right. just like makes, I think that's, you know, why I'm someone who's always like very deeply connected with people when I do connect with people, because I, and I think that's a big reason for it. And I think that's part of the superpower, right? Like you understand, you have felt so much that you understand that other people have also felt so much that maybe you don't get, maybe you don't get it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's funny that, I was just talking to somebody else about this too, on the um, episode before this, we talked about how, how isolating this is. You said earlier too, that it feels isolating. And on top of that, being a lawyer can be very isolating. Um, I'd like you would be in my office and not talk to people for the 14 hours that I was in that office, right. Um, for months on end. And we feel like all we want is connection, but we feel like we can't be vulnerable because if we expose our true self, we would be rejected and judged. And then we learn that it's the exact opposite, that people are looking at us as if we're all good, we've got it together. Um, maybe we're even standoffish, you know, we look like perfect because we're trying to look perfect and not show that we're falling apart inside and all of these external factors that are actually pushing people away and creating even more isolation. And it's once we get vulnerable and speak that truth, not only is it that old adage that the truth will set you free, but your vulnerability is your greatest strength and it's your greatest attractor because people are attracted to authenticity and they're attracted to seeing themselves in you and attracted to shared stories that make them feel supported themselves, you know, and, and bring them out of their own isolation. And it's having the, like, again, those tools in the toolbox or like the way to explain that, like vulnerability being a strength. I remember the first time I heard about that was from Brene Brown, but like just having someone say that out loud and, mm -hmm. and, and me just be like, wow, I didn't, I thought that was a weakness of mine that yeah. I, I care too much or I share too much or, you know, I get too emotionally involved. And I always thought that as like a, things I had to work on. So it was so, I think having spaces, like having a conversation with you, or even just like seeing people on social media or watching Netflix documentaries or whatever it is, or Ted talks and 
seeing like, oh, these things that I have labeled as certain ways in my life because of maybe how I was raised or who I've been surrounded by is not actually bad. It doesn't make me crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something that has been so eye-opening to me and that that's a big reason why I want to share my story. This is not comfortable for me in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm like, oh my gosh, just, I'm, I'm sharing so much about myself, but at the same time, I want someone to listen to it and say, oh yeah, me too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I just, I want to wrap this up because I don't want to take up too much of your time. Of course, I could talk to you forever, but <laughs> so I'm interested to hear why, um, you know, why become an advocate? Why talk? I mean, you just said, because I do want others to hear um, the way that you needed to or wanted to hear others share their stories so that you didn't feel so isolated. Is that really why what's motivating you now to sort of step out and share your story more rather than just sort of feel under control and feel empowered and continue in your career, in this amazing job at BBC Studios, and maybe affect change internally there. But, um, you know, you're definitely taking that extra step to do have conversations like this and just be courageous in this space. And um, where do you think that motivation came from? I think that comes a lot from that feeling of loneliness that I had. Um, I really, I think one of the biggest feelings I felt during my lowest points was this, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with this, with Donia, this one person? And I felt very, I felt like an alien. Like I felt very like, I'm not in the world that everybody else is in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could do my therapy, take my meds, do my things and like work internally and try to make a difference that way. But I think it's so much more impactful to open these conversations to other people and just like have other people listen to you because, you know, I could go through law school where everyone just thinks I'm like super type A and like maybe it just doesn't go out too much and she's really antisocial and they they don't know that I'm sitting in my apartment scrubbing my floors. Mm. It's like a very different personality. It's a very different person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that I want to be able to say that these two people are me. They're one person and it's okay to have completely different sides of yourself. It's okay to, like you said, like, you know, have your mask on or have those conversations for like clients professionally and like bring it in in a different way. But then there's also the aspect of, I want to connect with someone who genuinely has felt something like that. Like I, I, I don't say it lightly when I say you saved my life, because being able to talk to you and hearing that you can just talk openly about what you've been through. I mean, I had never heard anyone talk about like suicidal ideations in my life. And I remember just like listening to like, and just being like, oh, it's so profound to know that in that moment, you are not the only person Mm -hmm. who thought that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's just, if I can help one other person feel like they are not weird that they're not there's not something wrong with them that they're not this like alien in a weird world and that we're all going through something I think it's hopefully the the biggest impact I can leave because I know that's what's impacted me the most Mm -hmm. yeah that's beautifully said um and I think you're gonna have a a big impact for sure um sharing your story So thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Um, Yeah. And sharing your story. Thank you. And thank you for making me feel safe enough to do so. You are the best. hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. You know, Donya and I have never met in person because we met originally during the pandemic and I'm in Boston and she's in New York, but I can't wait to just 
be with her for an entire afternoon with some warm coffee and another amazing conversation. And I hope you all will come back next Wednesday to hear all about Cave Club. And in the meantime, you can go check it out at caveclub.us. And I'll put that link in the show notes. So it's C-A-V-E-C-L-U-B.us. It's a virtual community and doors open on March 1st. And you'll definitely want to check out the Founding 50 membership option if you're an individual and looking for membership just for yourself, not your company or your law firm. Those 50 uh, memberships, those first Founding 50 memberships are there aren't a lot left. They've been going fast over the last two weeks and the cost savings in there are really crazy and they're not coming back. So I hope you get them before they're gone. And remember the inspiration for Cave Club and this podcast is so that you will feel in every bone in your body that you are not alone and we are all in this together.